Hello, and welcome back to CaptureQ. For today's episode, we bring you Adam Jones. Dr. Jones is a professor in political science at the University of British Columbia, and he's also the author of Genocide, A Comprehensive Introduction. This year, 2021, he's working on the fourth edition, so there will be some updates, and we talk about that a bit in the show. Dr. Jones obtained his PhD at the University of British Columbia, and he did postdoctoral research at Yale University. His research is focused in the fields of comparative genocide studies and international relations. He's also both a fan and a critic of Noam Chomsky. And we talk in this episode about critiques of American foreign policy and how they relate to genocide. We talk about crimes against humanity, we talk about war crimes, and we talk about the difference between all three. If you're at all interested in international relations and foreign affairs, you'll love this episode. So with that, we'll dive right in, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Adam Jones, a professor at the University of British Columbia in the Okanagan. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much indeed. We were just chatting before I, I started here. Um, I, I wanted to get kind of your background. If you want to take us through your education, how you got interested in genocide um, and, you know, war and conflict. Let's just start from the beginning. Yeah. Well, I've always had an interest in those historical themes. I remember as a teenager, I had a copy of uh, a very early book on uh, genocide, its political use in the 20th century, sitting on my bookshelf, but never actually opened it. And right through my PhD at university, I was focusing on a subject which is quite different, uh, mass media and political transition. I was doing field work in uh, Russia and South Africa, Jordan, uh, Nicaragua, which was the subject of my first published book. But throughout, I mean, from adolescence onwards, I had been very interested in human rights issues. I did a lot of work around Central American and Latin American causes in the 1980s and early 90s. And Guatemala, for example, was a case where at the time that the genocide was going on, it was being referred to as such by at least people that I was reading. So it was kind of there in the background as a concept, but I had never really looked at it. And then in the 1990s, I got very interested in the theme of gender and human rights. But from a somewhat unorthodox and inclusive perspective, that is to say that I wanted to apply a lens that would look at both femininities and masculinities and focus upon, in particular, the way that gender constructed or contributed to constructing negative outcomes, destructive outcomes. So the type of human rights abuses that I had long been concerned with. And I remember quite clearly in 1999, during the war in Kosovo, where the Serbs were basically doing the last gasp of their 
ethnic cleansing in the Balkans. And of course, it was a major international crisis, etc. Um, I was reading the regular accounts of the separation of men of an imputed fighting age from the rest of the civilian population. So this is not prisoner, prisoners of war per se, but just you move in, you occupy a town. Mm -hmm. Now, I had written about that phenomenon in the Yugoslav context going back to the early 1990s. I wrote an article in 94 called Gender and Ethnic Conflict in Ex-Yugoslavia. And I think it was the first academic article that really made that kind of human rights case. Like, we need to understand the way both women and men are being targeted according to particular gendered expectations. And when Kosovo, and, and that, of course, was right before the Srebrenica massacre in uh, Bosnia, which is the really sort of prototypical separation and massacre of younger adult men, right? And so when the, the Kosovo events happened, I just remember thinking to myself, I was in Barcelona at the time, and I remember thinking gender side, because I like playing around with words. And I thought, that's what's going on here. It's a gender directed strategy of genocide. And then, unfortunately, we had search engines even back then, and I searched the word and found out that somebody had beat me to it, a feminist scholar, uh, Marianne Warren, who published a very interesting book called Genderside that gave me quite a lot of interesting angles to work with. And so from that point on, my interest in gender and human rights and my interest in what is this field called genocide studies kind of went in parallel. And that was really just as the contemporary field of genocide studies was taking off. Uh, so it was a good time to get involved the literature was still not too huge, so you could master it. Um, yeah. Your book, Genocide, A Comprehensive Introduction. Yeah. Um, that was the first book that I learned about you. So that was in 2006, which is a long time. Yeah, ago. first edition, yeah. And now it is considered one of the most comprehensive books. It's, you know, a lot of people in school read it. Talk a little bit about how you came to write that and yeah. many iterations. Yeah. Well, uh, it follows quite naturally from the previous narrative that I had sort of begun to be very interested in the field, was reading voraciously, and happened to be in South Africa presenting a conference paper when I met a gentleman named Craig Fowley, who was a commissioning editor for Routledge Publishers. And they have a pretty cool job. They basically get to travel all over the world 
and buy dinner for authors <laughs> and see if they can get the authors to sign a contract for doing some interesting sounding project with them. So, <laughs> so I sat down, I was fortunate to sit at his shoulder and he does what he usually does, which is ask you what your areas of interest are. And I mentioned comparative genocide studies and sort of nodded and said, is there a good textbook in that? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, <laughs> and there were a couple of books that were being widely used in classes, but they were older. They were edited volumes. And I said, you know, there isn't really something that aims to be inclusive of the at least a good portion of the range of disciplines that this subject is mm -hmm. approached from. Mm -hmm. That for me is intellectually the most nourishing thing about it because it forces you to go outside your safe disciplinary boundaries and just read all over the map, especially if you're presuming to write a comprehensive introduction, right? <laughs> so uh, that was kind of what I said was needed in the market. And I said something with a single authorial voice, something that is not just a bunch of different people's essays slapped together and that can engage with the reader in a, in a more personal way. And that was, um, he said, uh, that sounds really interesting. Could you put together a proposal? Um, I went back home slightly inebriated to the hotel and just sat down and wrote the proposal in about 90 minutes. And the next morning at 9 a.m. at the book fair, there was Craig, and I handed a printout to him and said, here's the book proposal. Oh, <laughs> and we went from there. I've published mostly with Routledge. They've been very accommodating of what I want to work on. And the fourth edition is currently in preparation this year. So. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. That's a, that's a neat, I like the background, a good story to it. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about what leads to genocide. What, what are the historical lessons that cause a person or a population to turn against itself? Yeah, uh, of course, the population is not always turning against itself. So when indigenous people, for example, are targeted by a colonial invader, yeah. that's a pretty straightforward conquest in search of riches and resources and power and all those things. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of the reasons why I say genocide. I'm one of those who believes that genocide really goes back to the dawn of history and beyond, that it's for thousands of years, it was just a standard way of making war and defining people according to a particular set of in-group and out-group attributes, right? And very often that is conducted by peoples and groups that can be considered foreign to each other or alien to each other. So it's not necessarily the more interesting psychological and sociological question that you're raising there. In fact, I, you know, before leaving it, when you talk about things like imperialism, war, 
the motivations are not hard to understand. They're pretty basic and they've been around for a long time and they're pretty deeply embedded in the species. So when imperialism and when war, probably in particular war, are carried out via genocidal strategies, the underlying motivations are pretty boring, right? It's usually just conquering and exterminating and, and seizing land and riches. The deeper question I think you're asking is in a plural society, uh, how is it that certain groups are marked off for um, separation, dehumanization, harassment, legal persecution, mm -hmm. uh, racism in everyday life, discriminatory treatment at the hands of the state, etc. And first of all, everything that I just described there is, I think, steps, maybe steps along the road to genocide doesn't mean we should sit around and wait to see whether racism leads to genocide before confronting it. But mm -hmm. they are all major, major co-factors, right? You hear any media when, you know, the lead up to, you know, say Rwanda, there is a lot of this talk on, you know, radio stations about the yes. side. And it you kind of hear the echoes of it today on Twitter, today on Yes, for know, sure. Any extreme side of social media. Absolutely. Social media, you know, I'm a devoted reader of some comment sections in far right uh, quote unquote news sources, um, not because I want to really read the so-called reporting, but because I appreciate having the insight into the mindsets of the supporters of this mindset. Yeah. And what you find is precisely the type of rhetoric that you would expect, you know, racist, xenophobic, misogynist, violent, uh, talking about and planning violence to purify the society and get rid of the traitors so that the true patriots can run the show. Where have we seen that before? You know, it's a very common yeah. dynamic. So there's no question that one of the reasons that you want that you study the dynamics from Rwanda or the Jewish Holocaust or whatever of the past is to try to give you a more nuanced sense of how genocides develop and what you should be looking out for. Uh, and hopefully what you can do about it before it becomes a conflagration, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That's important in the sense that the enterprise of genocide studies has always been activist in that sense. It always mm -hmm. wants to intervene and stop, not just to understand the dynamics of what's going on for uh, reasons of intellectual interest, you know? Do you find in studying this that there is some psychological phenomenon of, of believing they're on the right side, believing they're doing the right thing? Because yeah. you get it from all extremes, right? There's yeah. this belief that we're on the good side and they are truly evil. And then there's the bad actors who take you know advantage of that narrative. Yeah. 
Well, you know, I ended up being a political scientist by profession, but it's always seemed to me that the core of understanding genocide must lie in psychology mm-hmm. uh, and individual and collective psychology. Yes, you know, there is a lot to be said about the way people behave in groups and in collectivities and the way that sharing and diffusing that sense of responsibility allows people to abdicate a sense of personal responsibility for genocidal enterprises that they're caught up in. Or, you know, the famous observation that if you can define a genocidal project into discrete tasks so that only a tiny number of people are actually doing the killing, but much larger numbers are, you know, running the railways that get the victims to the camps or they're, you know, doing the paperwork or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, But because it is a sort of micro box bureaucratically, psychologically, it's easier to cope with than if it's all on your shoulders and all that burden of moral responsibility. So there has always been a justifying ideology offered along the lines of the group we are asking you to target is, and then there follows a whole range of adjectives, right? Dangerous, terrorist, subversive, uh, subhuman, animal-like, Um, you know, not rising to our level, uncivilized, and you can make up the rest of them. But those are all being provided, I think, as a kind of psychological sop to the individual who is being usually conscripted into these enterprises rather than eagerly volunteering for them. Mm-hmm. You brought up a word responsibility. Um, there is this notion, if we're looking at something like the International Criminal Court, you know, obviously comes from a good place, but this notion that only dictators from developing countries and no war criminals from, you know, the West are ever prosecuted in right. the ICC. Do you want to talk about that a bit? Sure. Well, one of the earliest contributions. Uh, In fact, I think the earliest book that I published in Genocide Studies is an edited volume called Genocide, War Crimes, and the West. And the subtitle is History and Complicity. And that was in 2004, rather early in Genocide Studies engagement with the skeletons in the closet of its own countries and its own cultures. Now, before I overstate that, it is really interesting when you go back to the guy who invented the word genocide, Raphael Lemkin, Mm -hmm. in a book in 1944 and in a whole set of unpublished writings that only have appeared in the last couple of decades. Axis Rule in Occupied Europe. Uh, published in 1944, almost unknown. I have one of the two or 3,000 copies 
This is the book that started it all and a very nice clean copy that I was able to get online for a couple of hundred dollars. But in the famous chapter nine, he coined the word genocide. And what's interesting to read his unpublished writings is that he was very attentive to, for example, um, the vulnerabilities of indigenous peoples around the world. He did research on the aboriginals of Tasmania, for example. Wow. And he really understood, if you look at his original definition of genocide, it fits very well with indigenous peoples' contemporary understandings of the campaigns against them. In other words, a kind of multifaceted, physical, cultural, religious, economic subsistence assault. And it is the combination of all of those different strategies that produces the destructive and genocidal outcome for Lemkin. Now, we've moved away a bit from that focus towards a more mass murder understanding of genocide. But Lemkin was very sensitive, for example, to the cultural and social aspects of this. So in that sense, and in the work of, I can think of a couple of early Australian scholars in genocide studies, there was an awareness early on from the start that it wasn't just a matter of Nazis in jackboots committing genocide, but that this was intimately swept up with imperial projects and wars, both international and civil and so on. But partly because it arose, genocide studies arose out of Holocaust studies, and the Nazis are the kind of prototypical genocide perpetrators, right? It was a while in that evolution. First, to develop a comparative field, they began with comparative study of the Jewish Holocaust and the Armenian genocide, okay? Mm -hmm. And that was radical in a sense, because for the first time you were comparing the Holocaust to something instead of saying it is incomparable and unique, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's still a pretty limited set, right? You're moving on to look at a westernized Christian Armenian population. And so since then, it has filled out a great deal. And I would say today in genocide studies, the colonial, post-colonial, and the indigenous dimensions of genocide are probably the most centrally studied theme in, in the field today. So it's there, but of course, nobody likes having those skeletons yanked out of the closet and it, it took some years for the field as a whole to become comfortable talking about some of the West's own crimes. I remember seeing a documentary about the Armenian genocide and really getting familiar with the controversy over whether it was a genocide or not and the, yeah. the divisions among that. Um, really interesting stuff. Well, highly politicized and a really good example of how 
a historical genocide can still just resonate through the international politics of today, right? Mm -hmm. Whether or not the Armenian genocide is recognized is still something that Turkey takes extremely seriously, and as do the Armenians and their supporters and so on. Mm -hmm. That tells you something's going on, right? What is it that makes this a live political issue 100 years later, or the residential schools in the Canadian context? You know? And I was going to bring up similar to that is the Rohingya in Myanmar and yeah. the Uyghurs in China. Do you have any thoughts on, on those two? Uh, there are two cases that weren't in the last edition of my textbook that will be in the next one. Yeah. And it's a reminder that, you know, they weren't in the last one because they weren't really on the radar. I had traveled in Myanmar in the Rohingya area, uh, Rakhine State on, on the West Coast, and was certainly aware of what was going on. But the framing of genocide really didn't become widespread until that most recent round of mass expulsions and murders. Uh, and same thing with the Uyghurs. Everybody knew that it was a human rights issue, but mm -hmm. the genocide framework was not yet widely applied and information was limited and so on. Mm -hmm. So as cases, you can do a sort of back of the napkin comparative analysis there and say that they are both kind of geographically marginal ethnic minority groups uh, speaking distinct language and practicing distinct religion from the majority. They have long been accused of being not real X, whether it's Chinese or Burmans. They have been accused of being in league with outside forces and terrorist forces. They've been accused of being culturally inferior to the majority. And so it's in many ways a quite typical recipe for persecution and xenophobia at the least. And now that in both cases, it's the gloves seem to have come off. It is now appropriate, I think, to look at both of them through the genocide lens. Of course. Yeah. You mentioned, obviously, your, your interest in gender. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of the PSVI. So William Haig, I believe his last name is uh, in, in the UK. He's a, an MP. So it's preventing sexual, sexual violence, violence in war. Okay. Um, have you been following any of their work at all? Maybe if I am not mistaken, Angelique Jolie had something to do with them a few <laughs> years ago. And I read the reporting. I've certainly followed that broader issue very closely of sexual violence in war and genocide. We could talk about because um, so in Yugoslavia, there had been rape as a weapon of war. And by trying to increase the prosecution of the bad actors and reduce stigma around survivors coming forward with that, it seems to me a complicated issue because I don't understand how you would what is legally allowed in war versus what is not all of these things seem horrible. It gets even more complicated because you have these three broad categories of international human rights law, which are war crime, crime against humanity, 
and genocide. Mm -hmm. And an illegal act in a war can be any one of those three. And very often, people are looking and saying, okay, was this an isolated event, for example? Okay, it's, then it's a war crime. And did it indiscriminately target a civilian population or was it targeting people of a particular group? That's the sort of question you would ask to distinguish between a crime against humanity and genocide, which has to be targeted against national, ethnic, racial, or religious groups under international law, right? So this is one of the challenges that people have. And to the extent that you isolate a systematic campaign and an extensive campaign of killing, sexual violence, torture, arbitrary imprisonment, uh, and so on, um, what you're looking for in distinguishing between the crime against humanity and the genocide is, is the attack taking place against a civilian population broadly viewed, or is it taking place against a carefully designated group according to nationality, race, ethnicity? But if you prosecute for crimes against humanity versus genocide in international law, probably if you get a conviction, it's going to be about the same sentence. It's going to be 20 years to life. And that is a useful reminder that under international law, there is no hierarchy there. We tend to think of genocide as being like the crime of crimes, right? Mm -hmm. And it's sort of on a pedestal, but there's no basis for that in international law. It's purely a matter of the objective characteristics as to whether an atrocity will be prosecuted as a war crime, crime against humanity, or genocide. And certainly for the latter two, the sentences for a conviction would be almost identical. Mm -hmm. There was a piece in Foreign Policy magazine, um, someone had asked you, I, I think it was the journalist, had asked you whether Trump's COVID response could be considered genocide, and your response was crimes against humanity. Yeah, when I said before that genocide has to target people of a particular group, it's actually the evidentiary bar is a little higher. You have to show that members of that group were intentionally targeted, that it was the intention of the killers specifically to target members of that group. And given that you can't read their minds and that they usually don't leave a nice paper trail behind you for evidence, you have to infer it pretty much. And it's, it's called the specific intent requirement. And with crimes against humanity, all that you have to show is that the acts against civilians were intentional in a personal sense, right? Like your firearm didn't go off by accident. And that you were aware that your atrocity was part and parcel of a widespread or systematic campaign. That's the language that they use. And you can see that that's a lower bar because you just have to show that, yeah, the person you know knew what he or she was doing and they were certainly targeting civilians without justification. And 
they had received orders from above. So they knew that it was part of, you know, a broader scheme or something, you know, that's the way you go. And, and it's just easier to prove and you get the same prison sentences. So I think genocide prosecutions are actually going to be fairly rare in the future and that we are, we are already seeing and will continue to see much more in the way of legal prosecutions of war crimes and crimes against humanity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Earlier you mentioned imperialism. I grew up reading Noam Chomsky, every book of his and every book of interviews of his as well. Me too, um, yeah. <laughs> you wrote a piece, of, so it was a major article, Chomsky and Genocide. You mentioned in it that there's been genocide-related controversies that have been surrounding him. Do you want to talk a little bit about that piece and about Chomsky himself and foreign policy and genocide? Yeah, you know, it's again, emblematic of just how controversial this term is, mm -hmm. that it becomes the centerpiece of a whole set of intellectual controversies. Chomsky is not alone in that regard. Um, Chomsky, of course, has been a very prominent leftist critic of American and Western imperialism more generally, he considers that a his citizen responsibility as an American. And like many other scholars, he has also been very skeptical of the way that the term genocide is manipulated for political advantage. So the way that it's convenient to label some crimes as genocide and to, as a way of evading responsibility for your own worst crimes that deserve the appellation even more. Mm -hmm. So he's interested in the way the language is deployed. He is, of course, a linguist. And I ex explored that a little bit in the article. What's maybe most notable about the article is that there's not really any there there in the sense that he doesn't really feel very inspired by the genocide concept. If anything, he's rather dismissive of it. But that in itself is interesting. And when you see him trying to sort of sneak it in through the back door to leverage his own rhetoric, that's, all, that's also a testament to the power of the word and the concept. So there's an ambivalence there that I thought was interesting to explore and which he's not alone in sharing. Um, the disturbing aspect of this anti-imperialist critique has come really with the Balkan Wars and Rwanda, where there was a group of scholars, Chomsky had a kind of arm's length relationship, but still endorsed a couple of their books. But there were other figures that were basically saying, because the imperialists say that the Hutus genocided the Tutsis in Rwanda, it must be wrong. And it must, in fact, it must be the reverse. It must be an imperialist plot to cover up who really died in the Rwandan genocide. And Chomsky's most regular co-author, Edward Herman, mm -hmm. who is, has passed away now, co-authored this little book with chapters on Rwanda and on Bosnia 
that were just the most denialist tracts I had ever read. I mean, it was gobsmacking. And it's a reminder that you can deny genocide via several different political routes. You know, there's obviously there's neo-Nazis denying what Hitler did to the Jews. Mm -hmm. But there's also people who think, uh, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And therefore that anybody who uh, is accused of genocide by an imperial power, it must really be the other way around. And there's no intellectual substance to that kind of approach. You know, It's interesting you brought this up, even in context of speaking earlier about reading right-wing forums and whatnot, is that, you know, I've read a lot of Noam Chomsky and I've also read some Jordan Peterson. And the interesting thing that I find about both of them is that if you are studying you know, the atrocities of American foreign policy for however many years, 40, 50, 60 years, you're going to come away with the cognitive bias that Chomsky would have, whereas Jordan Peterson, who studied the atrocities of them for 40 something years, the whole, you know, confirmation bias of thing, and it seems to be kind of a a difficult thing to get past because how could these two individuals even have a conversation at this point yeah and yeah they might surprise you you know i think one of the things you can say about chomsky i don't know peterson's work well but one of the things you can say about chomsky is he's he was never naive about the other side in the cold war for example that's when i started reading him and his sort of anarchist tinged critique of the Soviet Union was Mm -hmm. always really interesting to read as well. Mm -hmm. His argument was, look, I'm not a Soviet citizen. It's not my moral responsibility to spend all my time speaking out against Soviet communism. Uh, My responsibility as an American citizen, the influence that I have is over the crimes of my own state, which is a Mm -hmm. coherent ethical perspective, but he never fell into the trap of saying that, okay, because the United States is bad, the Soviet Union must be good. I always thought, I think he always saw it as a a very degenerate form of socialism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Interesting. Very, those are good points. Um, You call yourself a real globalist and a humanist. Do you want to explain why? Um. I have been privileged to be raised by a very globe-trotting couple of parents, uh, one of whom spent time as a flight attendant with Pan Am, and the other was an officer in the RAF, British uh, Royal Air Force, stationed in many places uh, at home and abroad, uh, which is one of the the main reason that I was born in Singapore all those years ago, because there was still an RAF base there. So they certainly encouraged me from a very early age to think in global terms, encouraged me to travel 
solo from a very young age uh sort of like mom are you not even gonna protest this a little bit <laughs> no no go out and see the world you know <laughs> give us a collect call once a month and uh i took that and ran with it and i've always just found that the immersion in a different culture historical narrative the whole bit is the greatest and most fulfilling experiences that I have. I do a lot increasingly of photography uh, under a Creative Commons license. So if you do a Google search for global photo archive, you will get the 25,000 plus photographs from over 70 countries that I've taken over the years, and I make those freely available for personal and academic uh, purposes. So I've just always been kind of gobsmacked by the diversity and complexity of the world and its many uh, different avenues. And I think that was what really drew me when I got into genocide studies. I didn't say to myself, okay, I'm going to be a Rwanda specialist or I'm going to be a Bosnia specialist. I've certainly come to know some genocides better than others, and there's a lot more material on some than on others. But at the same time, I really wanted to be globalist in my thinking. I already was. And so I wanted to master just about every 19th and 20th century case that I could find anything written on. And then I wanted to do more traveling and photographing, and I wanted to visit some of those countries that I'd never thought about before, like Rwanda, you know, Mm -hmm. which I've now visited and toured and photographed the interior of their genocide memorials. So it's a very kind of ingrained wanderlust that has led to kind of an obsessive amount of traveling over the years. And it's just gotten swept up with my other projects like genocide studies, I guess. Mm -hmm. Incredible. I was going to ask you actually about your photojournalism, but that's a neat, uh, that makes sense that as you travel, you would, you would take those images. Yeah. I mean, I, I find it a very interesting challenge and in some ways also a joy of course because you can take a finished work of photo art in a fraction of a second it's a hell of a lot easier than writing a book you know (laughs) so the spontaneity of it I've always liked you know if it works it works if it doesn't you just delete it right it's it's wonderful but I think that it's interesting to ask and I have written quite a lot about this subject and spoken about it with photos accompanying how do you visually represent this subject of genocide right And, and I first encountered that with the first edition of my textbook because I'm like, okay, I have to claim, I'm claiming to be providing a comprehensive introduction here. One of the distinguishing things I want is for it to be visually very arresting because most books on genocide were just seas of print, right? And I wanted, I wanted a real eye-catching visual component. 
But then what? Are you just going to have pictures of mass graves or corpses or dictators? You know, this is not a very nourishing visual diet. Let's put it that way. And it, mm-hmm. it risks turning people off. For the same reason, I have always told publishers, do not put bones or corpses on the covers of my books, because it's the most cliche thing that people think of when they're publishing on genocide. Mm -hmm. I've had all kinds of proposals for some kind of horrific image, which is certainly eye-catching, but then makes you sort of recoil in horror, right? Mm -hmm. I would much rather draw you in with the image on the cover. And that brings up the issue of then how do you evoke this subject and and explore it more indirectly? Uh, How can you photograph memorial spaces in a way that sort of provide an indirect echo of what happened or survivors' faces? Uh, You know, there's a whole different way that you can project this, which is more imaginative and less alienating Mm -hmm. than just atrocity photos. And and that's something I've wrestled with over the years. And when I can find an image that, you know, redirects you sometimes even two or three times, like people watching people watching people thinking about something. I find that fascinating. And and you're being automatically immersed in almost a collaborative production of meaning rather than sort of rearing back in Mm -hmm. horror. So Mm -hmm. interesting question. You speaking about survivors calls to mind, even though it wasn't a genocide, it was pure imperialism. Um, the Ken Burns documentary on Vietnam and how well they did that, where they spoke to both sides, survivors of both sides. Yeah, that was balanced. Um, I thought that was, you know, I'm a Ken Burns fan. He's a really um, incisive documentary maker. You're not going to get a Chomskyan anti-imperialist critique from Ken Burns. But surprisingly, Uh, you know, not not pro-America, that's for sure. Yeah, I think probably in this day and age of identity politics and subaltern voices, those who were, you know, in the commanding heights when it comes to video production or whatever are more conscious than they've ever been about Mm -hmm. the plurality of voices and perspectives that goes into history and much less likely to just impose a one-dimensional version on it. We see this as well, you know, with the attention to the dark sides of Canadian history. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're less we're less propagandistic and ignorant when it comes to understanding the atrocities and sins of the past and of the present and of the future in the sense that I think we have a more nuanced understanding of the fact that any person and any people and any culture can fall into the genocide trap or be can be targeted as a result of that you know it's uh it's a pretty ubiquitous thing in human affairs 
do you want to talk actually about truth and reconciliation commissions? I feel like we're finally getting to the point where, as you said, and, you know, being a journalist, seeing the truth side of that really come out. We're not shutting down any stories and we're listening and we're listening to survivors. Where does the reconciliation piece come in and, and how is that? What is it? What is an accurate reconciliation, an mm. effective reconciliation? Mm. You know, in, in the textbook, I deal with that alongside issues of uh, justice and redress. And I don't think that you can really separate these different strands very easily. That is to say, I don't think that you could achieve reconciliation without meaningful apology, truth-telling, mm -hmm. uh, material recompense, and the rest. It's all part and parcel in that respect. Um, this is something that, of course, has really captured the attention of the world since South Africa and the post-apartheid mm -hmm. TRC. It's been tried around the world, including you know, quite a number of, of fairly obscure cases, although we're familiar with the the South African and Canadian ones and one or two others. What truth and reconciliation processes do, and there's another institution that can be mentioned alongside them because they've just launched one for the Uyghurs in China. And that is the so-called People's Tribunal or Citizens Tribunal. When you have a kind of a realpolitik blockage, right? That China is not, never going to be dragged before, you know, Xi Jinping is never going to be dragged before the International Criminal Court. So mm -hmm. what can we do? And what you do is hold essentially a quasi-legal proceeding where you hear from witnesses, you argue cases, uh, typically, you emerge with a guilty verdict. You know, they're not sort of a fully balanced legal proceeding, but they're designed to get evidence on the table about crimes of the past or that are going on at present, as with wow. the Uyghurs. So the truth and reconciliation process is almost always post facto, right? Like it's, you're saying that on some level, we have reached a new stage of things and we must reconcile for the sins of the past. And I think there's a lot of discussion about it. I think that there has been in Canada, meaningful progress made at the institutional levels, the political levels, the level of memory and history, as we see with the explosion of interest around the Kamloops residential school and, and the way that that just becomes instantly the uh, number one news story in Canada for weeks, that didn't used to happen. Around the world know? as well. Around the world, you know, that when I was growing up in the Okanagan in the deep dark days of the 1970s, there was not that level of consciousness. And we were all complicit in casual racism and absurd uh, ethnic stereotypes about their cultures and so on. We have advanced. There has been meaningful progress. Mm -hmm. But we still can't get drinking water to reservations across the country. There's a lot of high-flown rhetoric and 
declarations, but at the level of simple subsistence, the indices for indigenous peoples in Canada remain a national disgrace. And if you think on some level the genocide still continues, then surely it's in those kind of indirect structural Mm -hmm. uh, ways of preserving these communities in a state of poverty and hopelessness. Mm -hmm. Uh, that is a major factor there. So without real and meaningful and and material compensation and investment for experiences like that, simply holding a commission and standing up in parliament Mm -hmm. and making an apology is not going far enough, to say the least. Mm -hmm. And is that something you think about often, the effects of genocide that are are still going on. I mean, you look at Bosnia, you look at Rwanda, you look at Cambodia, you look at anywhere where these atrocities have happened. Are are there in every instance, the kind of, you know, butterfly effects? It's a great question. I think broadly speaking, and tied in with these activist concerns, uh, there has been ever greater humanitarian and scholarly interest in the post-genocide environment on a whole range of levels. So one that I deal with a lot, for example, is women and gender post-genocide, you know, in communities that have been torn apart or women that are victims of uh, survivors of sexual violence during genocide, etc. If you're a genocide activist and a genocide has happened, then what positive thing can you do, right? Surely the focus has to be on survivors and on issues like reconciliation, compensation, and so on, leaving aside the whole prevention aspect. But Mm -hmm. post facto, really your allegiance and solidarity has to be with those who are trying to pick up the pieces in the wake of that. Another area that I find particularly interesting is the whole question of history and memory and the way that these experiences reverberate in collective cultures, becoming part of the collective identity. Look at the Armenian diaspora worldwide, for example. One of the central things that unites that diaspora is memory of the Armenian genocide and a determination to bring justice, right? So it has become really swept up in the notion of what it means to be Armenian, to have experienced a genocide as a people. There's a danger in that also, because it can lead to a kind of victim Olympics, and it can lead to an insensitivity to other people's experiences, including those for which you might be responsible. And I'm thinking, for example, of the Israeli-Palestinian case. And you've got a case there, obviously, of a state that was born effectively out of genocide in late 40s, uh, but in its treatment of a subjugated ethnic, cultural, religious minority is displaying some of the same 
persecutory strategies that have been used against it in the past, leaving aside questions of whether it qualifies as genocide. You know, mm-hmm. they're often, I think, not terribly useful discussions to get wrapped up in. Mm-hmm. But there is this case of the victim becoming the victimizer mm-hmm. and what we call in international relations conflict dyads becoming kind of enduring and reciprocal over time, depending upon who has the upper hand. Another good example of this is Hutu versus Tutsi in Central Africa. You know, you have Rwanda next door, you have Burundi. And in Rwanda after 1961, 62, the Hutus ended up running the show and eventually committed genocide against the remaining Tutsi minority. In Burundi, just next door, the Tutsi minority ended up running the show and ended up committing waves of genocide against the Hutu majority. To understand that conflict over time, first of all, very complex, But secondly, you need to understand, I think, the way that these experiences reverberate regionally and can trigger things like, for example, refugee flows. If hundreds of thousands of terrorized Hutus flee Burundi into Rwanda because they're being persecuted by Tutsis, That's hundreds of thousands of Hutus that you can recruit in Rwanda to help you kill Tutsis. Do you see what I'm saying? And and so the way that these uh, physically and ideologically and in terms of historical memory uh, ricochet and reverberate uh, around a nation state or around a region is, is I think, a a very interesting and important Mm -hmm. area of study. It, it, it's very interesting. Um, I do neuroscience reporting looking at addiction. And when you realize what, you know, abuse and childhood neglect and all of these horrible things do to the brain, and then you realize that those individuals are more likely to reach for a substance or an activity that reduces the stress. Yes. You can, you can feel, you know, that not that they're right in doing so, but you can understand it so much more. But what I've been interested in lately having you know known that for a number of years is how do you avoid the anger that that those early lessons can give you because the anger then does what you're saying is is bring you into this state of victimization so now you feel you know justified in harming others yeah. not all but some some people maybe the truth and reconciliation process is significant in mitigating to some degree that sense of anger, because I think a lot of anger is humiliation. And I think a lot of feelings of humiliation come from a sense of being ignored, marginalized, unheard, mm-hmm. um, victimized, but not permitted to relate your story or not granted the same victim status as people in similar situations and so on. And, and it can result in a, in a, in a major backlash and a, a sense of kind of narcissistic self-righteousness, right? That mm-hmm. uh, if you are the perfect victim, then you are not responsible for anything that has been done that, that you may do mm-hmm. uh, because of what has been done to you. Think of the Germans, you know, and the whole cult of 
the Versailles Treaty and how Germany was humiliated after mm -hmm. the First World War Absolutely. and reduced to minor power status and emasculated, you know, all these yeah. all these psychological yeah. themes that resonate very deeply at a uh, at an individual as well as a collective level. Uh, and what happens, you know, a fanatical extremist party comes along and says, we can alleviate your sense of feeling crushed down and humiliated and mm -hmm. we can return to you the territories that were stolen from you and we can restore the place of Germany among the nations. And oh my goodness, that is a an intoxicating message for people who are cultivating a stance of humiliation, rejection, mm -hmm. uh, persecution, etc. Which is not to say that persecution, humiliation are not real things that are done intentionally for real purposes. Exactly. But over centuries, pr you're pr pretty much guaranteed in most parts of the world that your people, quote unquote, have probably been both on the receiving end and the delivering end of genocide, right? If you take a macro mm -hmm. enough historical view, there are very few innocent parties in human history, collectively speaking. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I find, go ahead. That's the important lesson. When you always talk about, or, you know, the conversation of history, we must learn from history. I think this is key, is that, anger piece and the humiliation piece. I think that is a lesson that we yeah. should learn. I agree. And in the final chapter of my textbook, when I talk about prevention and intervention struggles and uh, strategies, I sort of uh, do a, a tri-level of analysis of that. You know, there's a, a, a level of global actors like um, nation states, regional bodies, and so on. There's the nation state and what is going on within individual societies. And then there's the individual and their personal contexts of family, education, religion, uh, peer bonding, you know, those kind of processes. Mm -hmm. And again, I think that when we are approaching the, the challenge of ending genocide, we need to have a toolkit that can operate on all three of those levels. And from a personal perspective, we, I think, really need to understand and be self-critical of our own capacity for hateful thinking, um, our own nations and cultures, history of, you know, falling into these uh, perpetrator traps, you know, be as a recognition that we are all humans and that that is encouraging on one level because it means there's much more that unites us than these stupid divisions that, uh, genocidal types get worked up about. Um, but it also, I think, promotes a certain humility and realism and uh, avoidance of excessive idealism about yourself or about your country or about the way the world is heading. So that constant sense of reflection 
um, a kind of constructive critical approach to the multifaceted messages that you're presented with every day, I think goes a long way to kind of grounding the individual with the kind of posture that can be effective uh, at the micro group level, at the national level, and perhaps globally too. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a wonderful note to end on. It's uh, yeah, it's really fascinating stuff. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for coming. Um, and you're you're leaving to uh, you're going to California. You're going to UCLA. I am. I'm going to head out to New York first for my first uh, post. COVID North American travels. So yeah, and then I'm off to uh, uh, be a visiting prof in the LA area for uh, awesome. the semester till through to Christmas. Awesome. Well, that'll be exciting. Yeah. Very cool. Thank you. Well, thanks for your interest. And I really appreciated the way that you structured the conversation. That was really one of the most stimulating conversations that I've had around that theme in a long time. So thanks. Oh, well, thank you so much. Likewise, very interesting stuff. So excellent. So good to meet you, albeit virtually. (laughs) Take care. Bye, Tracy.